All right, as we continue this morning, uh, John last week introduced us to Paul's arguments here about Abraham and the covenant given to Abraham. And Paul is making a logical argument here, a chronological argument here, that the promise given to Abraham predates the law. And that Abraham was deemed as righteous even though the law had not been given yet. Abraham was deemed as righteous even before that first promise that Abraham made that he would be circumcised and circumcise his children. This promise was given, this blessing to Abraham was given without any of these expectations back from God. Something I want to to bring out in this situation is this idea of covenant. Um, We don't really, we we believe more in contracts in Western society than covenants. Um, uh, And though there's there's some similarity, covenants go literally blood deep. When God cut his covenant with Abraham, he put Abraham to sleep. And then it was common practice that if two two humans were cutting a covenant, they literally cut a covenant. They took an animal sacrifice, cut that animal into, yes, I know it's gory, um, but cut that animal into, separated it, and those who were part of the covenant passed between the, the parts of the animal. And they did this symbolically, saying, if I break my covenant, this is what should happen to me. The interesting thing is, when when God cut the covenant with Abraham, Abraham was asleep. God was the one who passed between the animals. This covenant, then, is an unconditional covenant. This covenant, then, is God promising to Abraham that your, your Seed, your offspring will be like as many as the stars or as many as the sands on the beach. I will make this happen. No matter what you do, Abraham. You get that? God's the only one going between them. God's the only one ratifying this covenant. And so the argument that Paul is making at this point is that this one-sided covenant can never be made two-sided. All Abraham did was believe, trust in the covenant, and he was deemed as righteous. Circumcision didn't make him righteous, and definitely the laws that are given 400 plus years later didn't make him righteous. What made him righteous was the action of God. Paul is going back to the very beginning. You remember whenever I shared about Abraham, uh, what is right before Abraham? Remember when I did this to you? AJ, what story comes right before Abraham? I feel like I did this just a few weeks ago. Adults? The Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel comes right before this. And and this is this is essentially to the to the Genesis writers, this is the culmination of all of our sinfulness. It has come to us trying to reach to God, and God must stop it. Abraham is the next person we meet. Abraham is God's new journey of trying to defeat the sin that we had allowed come in. And he's going to do it. No matter what we do. No matter what Abraham does. This is one-sided. 
All Abraham had to do was have faith to trust. All we must do is have faith and to trust. And so now, now just just going back over that, now Paul is is starting to um, interpret Scripture for the churches in Galatia. And I'm going to introduce you to a, to a seminary word that, that you may forget, but um, I think the, the idea is important. The idea of exegesis. Exegesis means, means to pull out. And when we use it, every week whenever I get ready for a sermon, I exegete. I try to pull out truth that, that could be in the Scriptures that isn't as evident. But part of exegesis, part of good pulling out, is not just pulling out the truth from the text, from the scripture, but it's also pulling out the needs and truth of your audience, of who you're trying to talk to. And that's what Paul's doing here. See, Paul, if you're, if you're a good student of scripture, seems to be treating this promise to Abraham wrong. Because when God says, uh, I will bless your seed and from it salvation will come into the world that your, your descendants will be like as many as the stars. Who's the seed he's talking about? Yes, it's singular. But who remembers the story? Who do you think the seed is he's talking about? Isaac. This is all about give me a son. Father, please give me an heir. God, it's all in that same conversation. I just need an heir. So when, when the promise to Abraham is given in that original context, he's talking about Isaac, not Jesus. Paul seems to be betraying that original intent. Paul seems to be doing something with Scripture that shouldn't be there. But Paul, like a good preacher, like a good evangelist, his exegesis is not just the original text but also, what does his congregation need? What do they need to hear? And remember, these, this population is likely the outsiders of the outsiders. They are not even fully Greek and they definitely aren't Jewish. They're being asked to become Jewish. They are, they're kind of on this journey of identity. Am I in the right place? Do I need to, to absorb cultural identities that are not mine to find Jesus? To find salvation? And what Paul is wanting to show them is absolutely not. This promise that was given to Abraham about the seed points all the way to Jesus. See, Paul has an advantage that the original Genesis writer did not. Paul sees the whole story. He knows that the whole salvation that would come, yes, through Isaac, yes, through the nation of Israel, comes back to one man. God Himself among us. He could see that the sin that welled up so far at Babel could not be fully defeated until the cross and the resurrection. Paul could see that. So even though that original promise was about Isaac, Paul is not lying to his congregation when he says this is about Jesus. Only through Jesus does this salvation fully come. He exegetes his audience well. And in this, as he brings us back to Abraham and by, by proxy back to Babel, he's showing how 
This has been deeper than law and salvation for a long time. In in verse 22, it says this, But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. When he says under the control of sin here, he gives sin a cosmic force. This idea that sin is a is a, a large force that is able to keep us oppressed under it. Everything under the control of this cosmic idea of sin was locked up under Scripture. You notice, Paul doesn't even use the word devil or Satan here. Paul, in other letters, will talk about Satan. But in this situation, when he's talking about the salvation coming through Jesus, he, he actually, I believe, is saying there's something deeper than Satan. That's the problem here. It's this idea of sin that has oppressed us for too long. We brought it into the world. And it is a power that we cannot escape from. Even Satan himself could not escape from. There's a cosmic battle involved in Paul's letter here. And he's showing that the only way this battle could be won was by someone greater than that sin. No law can do it. And then he talks about he, he talks a little bit here about the intermediary. The intermediary he's talking about here is Moses. Remember, the people would not go up on the mountain to see God. Moses had to be the intermediary. Please, please communicate between me and God. And so that in the giving of this law under Moses was an idea that the one God wasn't fully present, wasn't fully seen. And that because of that, the law, the law is an incomplete glimpse of what God is getting at. The law is necessary. But why? The best example I could think of how to show this is from Harry Potter. Yes, I'm a nerd. Um, uh, But from Harry Potter. So Harry Potter was prophesied to to be the one uh, because of that. He who should not be named Voldemort comes and tries to kill him and he survives it. Right. And at this point, Dumbledore understands that there's something special about Harry Potter, even that the prophecy could be true. Harry Potter was a baby. And so Harry had to go stay with the Dursleys, his aunt and uncle who treated him horribly. He had to stay under the cupboard, or in in the, the cupboard under the stairs. And he had to wait. He had to wait until he could come of age. Harry didn't know this. Dumbledore did. And then he gets the letter. You don't know what this letter means. He gets the letter that that invites him to Hogwarts. I use this as an example like to, to understand what Paul's getting at here. That sin has already hurt us. Sin already has control of us. A sin deeper than even Voldemort or Satan. This this need for power, this need for control. A sin actually that that permeates his aunt and uncle here too. Need to control this child that is not theirs. This sin is there and and that there's a there's a promise of freedom in the future in the future. But there's a time of waiting, a time where where someone had to take care of Harry. It wasn't perfect. The Dursleys were 
altogether mean, but somebody had to take care of Harry. Even though sin is still part of that process, they helped protect him. He couldn't just be left alone. But there was the promise of the coming time whenever he would receive that letter and be set free and start to be able to find his way into the power that he was born to have. Paul's point is much the same. The law was given in order to help us be able to to stay as safe as we can under this thing called sin until the time it could be defeated. And so we waited. We waited. Now, Paul doesn't try. Part of me wants to wonder, well, why why did he wait all the way till Jesus? What's the timing? Paul doesn't care. All Paul knows is that it's happened. The letter has come, y'all. The letter is here. We have been invited to Hogwarts. We can go. Salvation has now fully been given. Sin and the law are no longer necessary. True freedom has come. We just celebrated our Independence Day, a day where we talk about freedom. And I chose this. I was originally going to stop at 23 and keep going, but I saw I saw the, the freedom in 23 through 29 and had to add it to the sermon this week because our idea of freedom in America is pathetic. Because our idea of freedom in America still draws borders within ourselves, around ourselves, between each other, our idea of freedom is still wrapped up in that same sin of control and power. The freedom that is given here, the freedom that is promised whenever we are set free from our caretaker, the law, when we are set free from our oppressor, the sin, that freedom is limitless. That's why Paul says here, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. There are no longer limits here. The law set limits. And those limits mainly said, if you're Hebrew, if you're Jewish, you're right. If you aren't, you're wrong. But those limits have now been shattered. Those walls have fallen. The borders are gone. Inside the freedom of the kingdom, there are no borders. Either ones drawn on the map or the ones that we like to put between each other, there are no borders. In the freedom given through Christ, there can be no violence. Violence only brings more hatred. Violence only brings more violence. You will never take away darkness with more darkness. Only light can do that. And so the freedom that is brought in Christ was not brought through tanks and armies, but was brought through God Himself taking that violence unto Himself to show that freedom can come another way. We have our borders here in the church also. This is mainly where I want to focus is in the church. How do we still draw these borders? How does our love, as we talked about during during uh, Sunday school, how is our love incomplete? How about that border we draw between liberal and conservative? Oh, those borders we have in our society that we don't want to talk about too much, but, but they, they create distance. 
And it allows us to point our finger across the aisle and say they're wrong and we're right. But if in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, also in Christ there is no conservative or liberal. We can't separate ourselves like this, church. Another divide that we see, I think, within the church and our culture, it's kind of similar, is between those in rural, the country, and those in the city. It's those liberal city folks that are a problem. Well, it's just those rednecks in the country that are the problem. We still point our fingers across it. We still have racial divides, even right within our church. And here's where where a sermon becomes confession, because I dealt with this this morning. My own hatred, my own my own side of things. I had my wall and I was ready to to judge somebody because I was sitting at Starbucks and I was um, sitting here kind of writing a few more notes in a sermon, just reading the scripture. I've kind of started this the past few weeks. And I love it. Just a few moments of just watching people finishing up my sermon. And I got to overhear these two men talking about the problem with black culture. And one and that that and how much how much one president has heard or whatever, but when it, the problem with black culture and they t- talked about there's an idea going around in politics of creating essentially a a FHA loan system specifically targeted at African Americans, helping them become homeowners. And I heard one of the men say, "We don't need to give them. We don't need to give them." Homes, if they can't pay for them, yes, they can make a down payment, but they're not going to be able to make the next one. And I couldn't help it. I was like, black people have jobs too. My goal in that was to try to shut down a conversation. I was ready for them to get angry back at me. I was going to move inside. Lesson learned, or uh, lesson taught, I brought out their race, racism. Good job, Pastor. And then a conversation kept going. And I started to find that these men were not the racist bigots that I had made them in my mind. Don't get me wrong. There's racism back there. But I got to meet two men with very warm hearts. And we started to talk about race and how, how it is that... that uh, Unfortunately, in our society, it seems like those with darker skin make less, have less opportunities, don't get as good of jobs, don't go to school, stuff like that. We're talking about this and how that's generationally come around. And I sat there realizing, oh God, that judgment I was making on them is also generationally brought around. They graduated high school in the late 60s. They went through high school during integration. Is it unrealistic to believe that they could carry some negative opinions out of that? And who am I to point at them and say they're the problem? Because as we kept talking, I found two men who want to do right who carry that weight of sin that has been put on them from the generations above them. That sin we're all under. That cosmic force that holds us all down. Here's the thing. This freedom that is given by Christ, this limitless freedom can defeat even that generational sin of racism around us today. 
The freedom is truly limitless in how it can heal our society, heal our people, heal our church. But the freedom given by Christ is also limitless in us. The freedom given through Christ is so limitless that it can finally defeat that addiction that you've had for too long. That keeps coming back. You keep relapsing. You keep hurting. That freedom can beat that. I am lucky to work beside men every day who are finding that in Christ. What about deep down pain from abuse? Maybe as a child. And that pain that is carried, that that maybe you've shared with people, maybe you haven't. And that pain goes so deep, you think it could never be fixed. Nobody wants to see it. Nobody wants to hear it. Definitely not God. The freedom given by Christ is so limitless that even that can be healed, church. No matter how deep the hurt, no matter how deep the darkness in your heart, it can be helped. And if you are unlucky enough to be in a situation where you are currently abused, the freedom of Christ can give you the strength to get out of there to save yourself. That freedom is limitless. For most of us, those things don't you know, like those are those are things for other people. But the rest of us deal with things like uh, personally anxiety comes up all the time. And I know anxiety is something that I think a lot of people deal with. They may not have they may not have fully addressed it, realized it yet. But anxiety, especially in our fast paced, success oriented world, society, anxiety weighs on many of us. But even with the anxiety, God's freedom is limitless. It can be healed. It can be beat. The fear and doubt and worry that can permeate so many of us every day that we wish we didn't have. Why do we have to be so afraid? Why do we have to worry about the future? We know it doesn't do any good, but we do it. That church can be healed. Amen. The freedom of Christ is limitless. It can solve all problems in our society and it can solve all problems in sinful me. Because here's the thing, that sin no longer has power. We don't become righteous by doing right things. We become righteous because God did the right thing. Will you trust that? Like Abraham, that's all we have to do. Is trust. And now that that faith has come, we're no longer held custody under the law. We're no longer held custody under sin. We are free. And that freedom is limitless. Let us pray.